0: Well, it is really good to be back with you all, and uh, always a privilege, always a joy to to open up God's Word. It's always a joy to visit in churches and see what God is doing. And uh, as Paul said, this area is dear to our hearts, and uh, it just is wonderful to see God's grace and God's Word and God's Church and God's glory advancing. Uh, in this place. So thank you for being a part of it and thank you for letting me be a part of it. And for Sovereign Grace being a part of it, I greet you from Sovereign Grace. All of our uh, brothers and sisters in around 70 churches around the world uh, representing them, I greet you and pray God's blessing upon you. I, I greet you in behalf of Risen Hope Church the new work just outside of Philadelphia. God is Uh, been with us in this last seven or eight months. We've seen his blessing, but so much more to do, as we all know, don't we? Uh, But to do more and to be faithful, we need to be nourished. We need to be fed by the Word of God. So the most important thing I can do this morning is to offer you God's Word. So would you you turn in your Bibles this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I like this pulpit. It's actually tall. It actually works for me here. (laughs) 2 Corinthians chapter 12 in verse 1. Paul the Apostle writing to the Corinthians says, I must go on boasting though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ, here he's being somewhat modest and kind of obscuring the fact that the man he knows is himself, Uh, but he says, "I, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body I do not know, God knows, and I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body I do not know, God knows. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that He should leave, it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you Would you please come by your spirit and teach us, not just teach us, not just inform us, but transform us. May your truth reach into the deep places of our souls and guide us to a place of trust and hope and rest in you. Oh, we pray it for your glory and we pray it for our joy, in Jesus' name. One of the uh, gr- the life verses that God has given to me is found in Luke 12. Everyone to whom much is given, of him shall much be required. may seem like a strange life verse, but it has affected me, it has influenced me greatly through the years, simply because I have recognized from the earliest time in my life that much has been given to me i have been a man richly blessed i had parents who were fully committed believing parents my dad a pastor and missionary for over 50 years i was arrested from my unbelief in my internal rebellion and brought to faith in christ in my mid-teens i was married a dad and a pastor by the time I turned 23. I have never had a bad pastor in my life. I have either sat under or served alongside a fine gospel man. I was taught God-centered, God-filled, God-saturated, God-drenched theology from the cradle. I had decent schooling, better mentors and teachers, and a couple of thousand books in my library. I have a wonderful wife who I've known and loved since childhood. I've got a team of elders and pastors around me who have surrounded me with care. I'm a part of a family of churches that literally rescued me from running out of ministry steam 10 or 15 years ago and have taught me how to better do ministry with the cross and the empty tomb of Christ at its center. I have ongoing relationships that strengthen and sustain me I am privileged to serve in a new church home that has been filled with the blessing of God and enormous opportunities for mission. We're seeing people saved. We're seeing racial walls torn down. We're seeing marriages put back together. We're seeing grace upon grace. And while I've never had a third heaven experience like Paul describes here, I have had just enough experience of the prophetic and the miraculous in my life to know that it is all very real. And yet I wonder why it is that I live my life always feeling like I'm no more than 10 seconds away from a really good cry. Why is it that I hear myself saying and thinking so often my head is full of tears. It is is because to keep me from being conceited by all of these blessings, to quote Paul, to keep me from being conceited, God has chosen, along with those great blessings, to fill my life, our lives, with sorrows. There are personal afflictions. 28 years ago, as some of you would know, I contracted viral meningitis. It did permanent damage to the nervous lining of my brain, nerve lining, and has left me in constant pain. So it's 28 years straight, every day, all day, all the time, no matter what I'm doing. Pain. That'll do something to you. We've had a son nearly lost to cancer at a time when both of my parents were dying of cancer. Five years ago we lost our pastoral role in a church that we had been in for nearly 30 years and that led us into a world of unknowns. We have children who do not yet know the love of Jesus. We have children who are wandering we have, we have a child who for more than 15 years has battled mental illness and it has led our child into and out of hospital and trouble, all to the everyday wrenching and breaking of galen's in my heart. Every day, tears. In addition... In our own particular congregation in Risen Hope Church, we started to form the group for the core of this new congregation nine or ten months ago, actually before then, but as it was coming together about nine months ago. In those past nine months, the enemy called death has visited us seven times. Seven times. Seven men have died in the last nine months connected to our church. Two of them, fathers of women in our church, dearly loved. One of them, a brother-in-law, 32 years old, a brother-in-law of one of the core members of our church whose passing left behind a 30-year-old wife with a three-year-old and a three-month-old child. And then four men who were directly connected to Risen Hope, whose wives are in our church, all of whom, all of which wives are under 55 years old. And there are now 10 children in our little church, our young church, that are fatherless children. This this is the world we live in. This, This is the real world. I know it's not unique to Risen Hope, right? It's not unique to me, to Gaylene and me. If we were to go around this room this morning and we were to get personal testimonies of each one of our lives and our life experience, we would find that we are, each and every one of us individually and all of us collectively, we are a mass of weaknesses. We are facing matters that make us feel weak and powerless and helpless and desperate, we feel stretched, we feel thin, we feel worn out, we feel nearly at the end of ourselves, we are full of weakness, full of tears, full of sorrows. If you have a heart that cares or connects at all to the human condition, you have a heart that weeps. You know weakness. But I'm here here to declare to you a truth this morning that's rooted in the text that I've read to you, and I summarize it like this. Grace sustained weakness, grace sustained weakness glorifies God and edifies others and in so doing satisfies us. Grace-sustained weakness glorifies God and edifies others and in so doing satisfies us. Let's look at the text in front of us. And I'm going to just draw from it a number of lessons from the text that may help you just a little bit to know the context for what Paul writes here. Paul's ministry and his person are under attack. They have been... Slandered people are accusing him of any number of things, and so in Second Corinthians, particularly chapters 10 through 12, he is defending his ministry to the Corinthians, he is setting the record straight. And part of what he says is that there are many evidences of strength and of effectiveness and power in his ministry. He, he talks about the signs of the apostles and other things that God is doing. There are are conversions happening. There are wonderful things happening. But that is only a small part of what Paul focuses on. What he really focuses on is not the strength of his ministry, but the weakness of his ministry. His primary argument in defending his ministry is an appeal to his own sufferings, to his own weaknesses, and then making the point that God has done amazing things even though I am so weak. God has done great things despite my infirmities, despite my affliction. So we go back, for example, to chapter 11. Keep your Bibles open. Just look back at chapter 11, beginning in verse 21. He says, to my shame, I must say we were too weak for that. Whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better man. I'm talking like a madman. With, how does he know he's better man? Far greater labors. Far more imprisonments. Countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night. Paul, what are your credentials? These are my credentials, he said. In many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from... Other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever knows I'm not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. I love the last part of that. It it almost, it it, it does make me smile. Here here is Paul, the man, Paul, describing all his weakness, and he tacks right onto the end of this, this, this scene that happened when he was in Damascus and he was being hunted for, and he had his great escape, which was what? Let down out a window in a basket. There's no no guns blazing here. There's there's no no wild car chase or chariot chase. There's there's nothing macho about this. Paul is huddled in a basket, being let down. You can just see it. That's Paul, the mighty man. Now the weak man. The man who in himself is helpless and frail and needy, and yet he boasts in his weakness. And then, as chapter 12 begins, Paul does describe an amazing supernatural experience, but he moves quickly from that to go on and make the point that it was actually in his weakness that God was glorified and others were edified. And he was satisfied. Let me share with you five truths from the text. I think it's five. Number one, this is basic. This is foundational to everything else. Suffering is sad, so it's okay to grieve. Suffering is sad, so it's okay to grieve. Christian, I I wonder if you have a category in your theology. I wonder if you have a category in your Christian experience for sad faith. I, I wonder if you have a category for grieving hope or lamenting joy. The language of this text is sadness language. In verses 9 and 10 of chapter 12, Each word he uses, many of the words he uses imply emotional duress. He speaks of weaknesses. Weaknesses are things that make you feel frail. They make you feel impaired and depleted. He speaks of insults. An insult is not an insult unless it's insulting. Unless it does some damage to how you feel. He speaks of hardship. The word he uses, the Greek word, speaks of that which constrains or stresses, or inhibits us. He speaks of calamity. It's not a calamity unless it is calamitous, unless it is a severe trial that squeezes, that presses in on our circumstances. He speaks of persecution. Literally, it means being harassed and harmed by others. He talks about pleading for relief from this, thorn in the flesh. And the word that he uses there speaks of a strong, imploring, begging, earnest cry. I want you to know Paul didn't wear a smiley face, folks. Paul didn't walk around with a grin on his face, making believe that life was okay. He was, as he said earlier, sorrowful. Are you sorrowful? Do you have the kind of faith that can admit you're sorrowful? Too often in Christian circles, we deny this. We try to deal with our sorrows by denying the sorrows, but it's not real, nor is it right. Paul Paul could easily... Who's the weeping prophet? Anyone know? Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Oh, that my head... were. Full of tears, he cries out, for the sins and the sufferings of my people. You could call Paul the the weeping apostle. His his ministry was, was in many ways defined or certainly strongly affected by tears. In Acts chapter 20, he says, I serve the Lord with all humility and with tears. Acts 20 again I served God ceaselessly night and day, admonishing everyone with tears. In 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 2, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. Philippians 3, many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. 2 Corinthians 12, 21, Paul was ready to mourn over many of those who had sinned. In Philippians 2, as he thinks about Epaphroditus, who nearly died, Paul says it would have been sorrow upon sorrow. In Romans 9, he speaks of having great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart over the lost and his unsaved loved ones. If Jeremiah was the weeping prophet, Paul was the weeping apostle and both. We're imitating and following the example of our weeping Savior, man of sorrows, familiar with grief. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Man of sorrows, for the eternally happy Son of God. Man of sorrows. There are times, the scriptures say, where his heart throbbed with pity. He was moved with compassion. He was given to tears and sighs. There were times when he cried out in his sadness, Oh, Lord, how long? You been there? Been there many a time. I lived there. I lived there. In Hebrews 5, it says of Jesus, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and many tears. Loud cries and many tears. The ministry of Jesus, loud cries, and many tears. That text may be talking about Gethsemane, where the loud cries and the many tears kind of came to a head. The anguish and the sorrow of the eternal Son of God, who had been in the Father's side, eternally blessed forever, who had left it all when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died left it all and was about to enter into an hour of darkness, the depths of which no one can measure, no one can fathom. Where it would lead all the way to that moment on the cross where he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He who had never known anything but the pleasure of the Father was now feeling the displeasure of the Father because our sin was placed on him. He was a man of sorrows, But it wasn't just in his dying hour. It wasn't just in his, in his grieving hour. It was in his triumphant hours as well. You remember John chapter 11, right? His friend Lazarus has died and is, is in the tomb. And Jesus arrives on the scene. And, and as he looks around, even though he knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, Jesus looks around and it says in the text he was greatly troubled And he wept and the language that john uses describes a deep anguish in his heart an anguish that that provoked him not just to tears of sadness but it may be tears of anger toward the enemy who had brought on such misery in this world jesus heart throbbed with sorrow even though he knew in just a couple of minutes he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Folks, there is a vital lesson for you and me in our sufferings there. Don't be too quick to move to the theology of relief, of deliverance, of triumph without passing through the valley of tears. Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, and yet he delayed the resurrection, he delayed the theology, he delayed the triumph long enough to feel the agony of what was going on. Too often, we Christians leap over the tears. But folks, that is neither healthy nor holy, nor real, read the Bible, read the Psalms, read the prophets, read Paul, read Jesus, and you're going to see tears over and over again. Oh, Lord, how long? You know what some of us need here this morning? We just need a good cry. I mean, we need to learn how to lament. Just weep. Just weep. Who made tear ducts? Obvious answer. Should be an obvious implication. He made tear ducks so that we would cry. So that we would cry. Do you need a good cry? Do you need to weep? need somebody alongside of you to weep with you as you weep? Oh, let us not as the church, let us not as Christians be fake. Let's not put a smiley face on. Let's not put on a silly happy grin and make believe. Let's learn to weep. Let's learn to lament. It's interesting, isn't it? If you read the Psalms, you find out that at least half of the psalms could be described as lament psalms. When I was back in our church in Jersey, I, I, uh, we ha- I had our, our folks sing their way through the psalms. Every week we would sing a different psalm. And the only way we could really do that was if I put the psalms to music. So I would actually, I went through I got all the psalms put to music, just chose an old hymn, and uh, took the tune and somehow forced the words into the tune, and we sang. One of the reasons why I felt that was healthy for our people was that it would teach us to learn how to lament. It would teach us how to be real, because the Psalms are real, they're raw. Before we go any further in this message to see God's power in our weakness, we need to acknowledge and feel and grieve and weep over our weakness. May God give you grace to do that. Suffering is sad so it's okay to grieve. That's point point one, point two, and we're going to have to hurry here. Suffering is divinely planned though often satanically provoked. Suffering is divinely planned though often satanically provoked. This is the clear implication of verse 7, right? So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. That is a confusing verse. Why did the suffering come? Why did the thorn in the flesh come? It was to keep him from becoming conceited. He says it twice to make sure we don't miss the point. And I can assure you that was not Satan's intent. Satan's intent is always the opposite of that. To make us proud. To make us self-sufficient. To make us arrogant. No, this was God's intent. This thorn in the flesh would keep him from becoming conceited, but it was a messenger of Satan to harass. So this was divinely planned, though satanically provoked. My, my sense of how the universe works based on the story of Job, based on texts like this, based on Jesus' words to Peter that Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. My, my sense of how the universe works goes something like this, that, that Satan being unbelievably evil and blinded by endless hatred for God and his people would kill and afflict and destroy everything if not restrained by the active hand of God. So if God was not holding Satan back, you think the world's bad now, there would be nothing but Death everywhere. Nothing but evil everywhere. But God's holding him back. God's restraining him. God is sovereign. Satan is not as great as God. God, Satan ultimately serves God's purposes and God's plans. God, though, will sometimes let Satan's leash lengthen a bit and give him permission to do things that Satan intends for death and ruin and evil, but God intends for good. And there are times then when, like with Job, like with Joseph of old, you remember what Joseph said to his brothers, what you intended against me, as evil against me, God meant for good. Satan stirred up his brothers against Joseph but God had a plan. God had a plan. Folks, there, there are times in God's plan that his plan includes him permitting sad things that he does not enjoy and him permitting bad things that he does not condone in order to accomplish Wonderful things that we cannot imagine. There are times in God's plan when He permits sad things that He does not enjoy and bad things that He does not condone. Think the cross on which His Son. A sad thing he did not enjoy. A bad thing he did not enjoy. But he permitted the sad thing he did not enjoy, the bad thing he did not condone, to accomplish wonderful things we cannot imagine. That's our God. So as you look at your sorrows and sufferings, it is so very critical to realize Divinely planned, though satanically provoked. This helps us, oh, it encourages us that our sufferings are satanically provoked should place us on guard against all the temptations that come with those sufferings, but that they are divinely permitted and planned should make us anticipate with hope the good that is going to come from those sufferings. God works all things together for good to those who are called according to his purpose, to those that love him. Third, suffering turns haughtiness into humility. Suffering turns haughtiness into humility and dependence into desperation. Suffering turns haughtiness into humility and dependence into desperation. Verse 7, so to keep me from being conceited, haughty, proud, self-sufficient, I was given a thorn in the flesh. Suffering turns haughtiness into humility and dependence into desperation. Just flip back very quickly in your Bibles to chapter 1. Just look back at chapter 1 where Paul describes desperation. Chapter 1 and verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received a sentence of death But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul Paul describes here a circumstance, an affliction, a trial, I think a persecution, in which he had the sentence of death. He had come to the end of himself. He thought he was going to die. It was over. And he says the reason for this is so that we would not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. It was to turn our our haughtiness into humility. It was to turn our dependence upon God into desperation. John Bloom calls it the mercy of desperation. Those points in our lives when we feel completely at the end of ourselves. You've been there? You've been to that place in your life where you're looking at the sorrow. You're looking at the trial. You're looking at the wayward son. You're looking at the finances. You're looking at the chronic, debilitating health condition. And you're saying, there's nothing I can do. There's no way I can fix this. There's no way I can get out of this. God help me. God help me. Do you have times in your life when you don't even get that far in your prayers? You just kind of look up and you groan. Been there. You ever get to a place in your life where you're tired of praying? Been there. I don't want to pray for this anymore. I'm tired of praying for this. I've been praying for this for 15 years and we're no closer to where we want to be than we were 15 years ago. Some ways it feels farther. How long, oh God? I don't even want to hear the words come out of my mouth again. I'm tired of the words and I'm tired of the prayers. I'm just desperate. It's a place where we begin to ask, in the words of the psalmist, O God, who do we have but you? Whom do I have in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forevermore. Oh, friends, it's not a bad place to be. In fact, it's a good place to be. I doubt very seriously that we are ever closer to God than when we are at the end of ourselves. It's not a cliche not a platitude. I don't offer that, just you know, some kind of Christianese. I'm telling you, life here. You are never closer to where you need to be than when you're at the end of yourself. When you're in those places where you're looking at life and the circumstances of your life and you're saying, I can't do this. I can't fix it. I am helpless. I am powerless. A sentence of death. That we will not rely on ourselves, but on Him who raises from the dead. Suffering, suffering is attended to turn haughtiness into humility and dependence into desperation. Fourth, I got to hurry. Suffering is the path to power. Suffering is the path to power. Is that like the bell that was going off earlier? Supposed to tell me to stop here? or what? Suffering is the path to power. Notice verse 9, back in chapter 12. Jesus said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ is, May rest upon me. Verse 10, when I am weak, then I am strong. Brothers and sisters, there is a direct connection. There is a direct connection between your weakness and an experience of the power of Christ. Suffering is the path to strength. Your power, Jesus' power, is made perfect in our weakness. Don't misunderstand that. There is nothing imperfect about the power of Christ. What Paul is saying here, what Jesus is saying here, is that our experience of the power of Christ is made perfect in our weakness. You will not experience the fullness of the power of God. You will not experience the infusion of His grace. You will not experience His strength for life unless you are weak. You know you're weak. You are afflicted. You are humble. You are desperate before God. His power comes through weakness. Philip Hughes writes it like this. I I don't have it on a slide for you, but just, just listen. For the Christian. The breaking up of the outward man. That's what happens when you get old like I'm getting. The breaking up of the outward man. The daily dying to self. That's what happens for every faithful Christian. Die to self. Mr. Hughes says, for the Christian, the breaking up of the outward man And the daily dying to self allows the divine life and glory within to burst forth and drive back the powers of darkness to the praise of Almighty God. The Christian, for the Christian, the breaking up of the outward man. You're relating to me, your outward man breaking up? Yes, it is. And daily dying to self as husband, wife, parent, child, brother, sister, pastor, dying to self as believer trying to reach a broken and stubborn and resistant world with the Gospel. Daily dying to self. It allows the divine life and glory within to burst forth and drive back the powers of darkness to the praise of Almighty God. It is true. You never see the power of Christ more evident, more visible, more wonderful than looking at a suffering believer, a weak believer who is strong in the midst of his suffering. God shines forth. Grace-sustained weakness glorifies God and edifies others and in so doing, satisfies My friends, Paul says we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. We're more than conquerors. Everything that comes at us in life. Paul says we don't just outlast it. We more than conquer it. It's Not just that we somehow get to the end of it. No, by the grace of God, that which is meant to harm us turns around and does us good and makes us stronger. We experience the power of God in our weakness. So don't run from suffering. Don't hide from suffering. I'm not saying don't create suffering or don't look for it. But when it comes, lean in. Embrace it. Weep over it, but then embrace it. Because God's about to do something in your life that could not be done any other way. If there was another way, He would do it another way. God is not a sadist. God is not cruel. He doesn't afflict His people without there being reason for the affliction. If suffering has come your way, lean into it in faith. For it is the path to power. And then finally, I think this is finally, our grace-sustained sufferings or suffering edifies others. I just want us to see this clearly. It edifies others. Much I could say about this, but I think that I I I will just focus on this thought, or these couple of thoughts. God's grace in our suffering shows others that what we say we believe, we do believe. God's grace in our suffering shows others that what we say we believe, we do believe. Suffering with grace authenticates our faith and authenticates our witness and our ministry to others. John Piper, in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, argues that one of the greatest, most effective tools in the advance of the gospel is the suffering of God's people. How we suffer speaks to the world powerfully about whether or not we actually believe what we say we believe. He tells a story about an evangelist in India. Let me read this to you quickly. There was once an evangelist in India who tromped across the roads to various villages preaching the gospel. He was a simple man, no education, but loved Jesus with all his heart and was ready to lay his life down. And he came to a village that didn't have the gospel. It was late in the day and he was very tired. But he went into the village and lifted up his voice and shared the gospel with those gathered in the square. They mocked him, derided him, and drove him out of town. There, being so tired, no emotional resources left, he, he lied down, laid down it under the tree, utterly discouraged, and went to sleep, not knowing if he'd ever wake up. They might come and kill him for all he knew. This is how the story goes. Suddenly, just after dusk, he is startled and wakes up. The whole town seems to be around him, looking at him. He thinks he's a goner. He starts to tremble, and one of the big men in the village says, We came out here to see what kind of man you were, and when we saw your blistered feet, we knew you were a holy man. We want you to tell us why you got blistered feet to come talk to us. So we preached the gospel, and according to J. Oswald Sanders, the whole village believed. Brothers, sisters, grace sustained suffering says that what we say we believe, we really do believe. It may well be the greatest, most compelling apologetic that we have for our faith, certainly one of them. More than smiling faces and happy grins, blistered feet and broken hearts, may well speak the truth of the power of God most eloquently. But God's grace in our suffering actually also affects others in that it proves that God's grace is enough. My grace will be sufficient for you. And when we live that in the midst of our suffering, people see that and they realize that God is enough. You know, it's a, it's a very humbling thing. Uh, I think I told Paul earlier, I told, told uh, Jacob Young this. We were at the uh, King's Cross Church yesterday. Uh, I told him, because Jacob asked me to preach on suffering. Paul asked me to preach on suffering. And uh, it's just beginning to make me wonder, you know, why, why is this? Well, I think I know why. I think I know why. I've come to believe that in my 30 almost 35 years of ministry the most effective the most effective part of my ministry is my headache and my sufferings. I believe more people have done been done more good through seeing the sufficiency of God and grace in our lives in the midst of our suffering than all my preaching has ever done. Because there's something. You see, this is God. (laughs) I'm still on my feet. I still have joy. I still have hope. I still have strength. I still wake up in the morning and I'm glad. Because God is enough. No, no cliche there, God. You see, as we experience grace-sustained suffering, it glorifies God, and it edifies others. just may well be that part of your life and your testimony that will open the ears of your unsaved neighbor, your lost loved one, your wayward child, as they see the reality of God shine through the darkness you're in. And so Paul says, amazing words, verse 9 at the end, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Grace sustained suffering glorifies God and edifies others and in so doing satisfies us. There is Nothing so deeply satisfying, so deeply joy-giving than in knowing that your life somehow or other is glorifying God and edifying others. Paul says, most gladly, therefore, I'll boast in my weaknesses. And I'm content. I'm satisfied. I have all I need because I have the grace and the power of Christ resting upon me in my affliction. My prayer, brothers and sisters, is that this will be your experience. Do not, do not stiff arm or murmur against the sorrows. Weep over the sorrows. But then look up to the heavens and see what God's about to do in your life because he is about to do great things. For his glory, for others' good, and for your joy. Let's pray. Father, oh, may these truths prove themselves to be true in each life here. And if anyone is here for whom this message has seemed bizarre, crazy, who has no idea who Jesus is or what this is all about, Lord, for that person, for those people, may it be that they will come to see that there was one who came here and suffered and died in weakness for them. And may they turn to Jesus and find life. Give us life, give us hope, help us to glorify you and edify you and be satisfied in our spirits as we walk through the valley of the shadow with your grace, your rod, your arms sustaining us, we ask in Jesus' name.